0: Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Magic the Gathering unofficial audiobooks podcast. I am Phil Dawson, and I first want to say thank you to our patrons. We have done it. We hit our goal, at least the fundraising portion. For those who don't know, I was trying to raise or use the funds from the patron to bring my wife's best friend here to Japan. But because of travel restrictions, we have to switch gears a little bit. But we'll be giving the funds to my wife for her birthday, make it really extra special. So thank you so, so very much. It really means a lot to me, and for those of you thinking about joining the Patreon, listen, you'll never need to join to listen, but it helps support this project more than you know, so even if you can join for as little as three bucks, every little bit helps, and it really helped these last few months to set up something very special for my wife, who again, allows this time during the week for me to do this for us, for you, so your support means a lot, no matter how much you can join for it, like they say, it's like a cup of coffee, or less for these great pieces of entertainment. I hope you are enjoying them, and I'd love to hear from you if you are. Phil and Sendai on Twitter or Instagram, and really, we only have two chapters left for this book. So hopefully we grow the support before the next book, and I hear from you, and we just keep rolling along. Also, keep rating us at that five stars on Spotify. If you want to, you can write that over-the-top review on Apple. Let your friends know about us. Join the Discord. Let's get going. Dominaria United out? Brothers' War coming soon? Okay, let's go! Chapter 20 Urza Flew Among Echelons of Radiant's Purification Army. He wore a battle suit, much like the one he had devised for his assault on Phyrexia. The mechanized assault armor bore special protections against fire. He remembered well the conflagration of glistening oil and the gore, and airborne poison. It was also proof against ballastate bolts. He wore great black battle hands, tipped with numerous blades, including a narrow axe and curved spearheads. From earlobes to toes, he was covered in black metal, scale mail, and power conduits. He realized with a certain irony that should he slay Phyrexian sleepers this day, he would seem more the monster and they more the humans. Ahead of Urza, to his left, flew the commander of the echelon, an archangel as faceless and sexless as the others, its name unknown to Urza but its command unquestioned. It bore a magna sword that could cleave the head from a bull with one swipe. Behind the archangel and a great cone flew a contingent of fifty warrior angels, some armed with whips and nets, others with enchanted torches that flared blue-white and were said to turn the skin of Phyrexian newts yellow. The remainder carried swords for summary executions and headbags that would allow the dead to be counted and the skulls to be immolated, preventing grave magic from reviving them. At the rear of the party sailed an airship loaded gunwall to gunwall with white-suited holy warriors. These humans stood statue-still as the ship surged along. Their eyes stared golden and dead from their heads. Righteousness had been part of these warriors' demeanors when they first arrived in Sarah's realm, and ruthlessness had been learned along the way. The flight of angels and avengers sighted their target ahead, a tumbled cluster of pulverized earth. What once had been an archipelago of aerial islands had been shattered into fragments of rock and grass. Remaining planetoids turned listlessly in midair. Some of them spewed uneven spirals of soot from the hovels dug in their side.
1: The jumbles contain the single largest infestation of Phyrexians in the realm.
0: Radiant had explained some days ago over a course of tea. The porcelain settings rattled with each stomp of boots drilling in the palace below.
1: They masquerade as angel folk and human outcasts, and to be sure, there are settlements of each among them. But there are wolves hiding among the dogs. You know them by their yellow-green cast and light, and their soul torches.
0: Urza lofted one such torch now. Others did the same. As yet, the light from the arcane brands was too distant and dim to pick out any creatures on the rolling boulders. and hunks of ground, they would see soon enough. Angels swooped down with lightning speed. The archangel commander made a series of crisp hand signals. The outer wings of the attack column broke away into sweeping lateral dives. Urza stayed with the leader, its core flight of twenty fighters in the air barge. The other two units, fifteen angels each, soared outward to converge on their target like a pair of hammers. The main flight rose following the Archangel. The field of rolling rubble dropped away beneath, revealing for the first time in its mist a series of larger aerial islands. The central force would land on the largest of these, purify it, and post a contingent there to secure it while proceeding to the second largest. Already, refugee hives of mud and stick were visible below. The colony crouched in a hollow of stone beside a dead forest of gray stumps. The refugees must have been scavenging the ruined forest for firewood. Another hand signal from the archangel indicated a flat rock bed just below the warren. They would land there. Like screaming falcon engines, the angels stooped from the sky. Their enchanted torches blazed all the brighter in the rushing air. The sight must have been horrifying from below, two score sunbright lights blazing down like comets, bringing with them a host of warrior angels and a boatload of angry humans. The sight must have seemed an apocalypse. The angels came to ground at a run. They dashed up slope toward the gaping entry to the warrens. Within, faces shone, yellow-green and wide-eyed. They flashed away into shadow. The angel warriors homed in on those fleeting faces. Their strides lengthened. Their blades rose. There came no shout of fury or terror as come from mortal armies on the charge. Only the sizzling torches and the relentless boots announced their coming. Blue-white light bleached the gently rolling landscape. Glaring circles spilled into the shabby-worn entrance. As the charge closed, a mighty crunch and thud sounded behind. The ground leapt. The barge of holy warriors had breached itself. A clank and boom announced the fall of the troop door. Then came the human roar of fury and fear. Meanwhile, Urza and his Archangel commander had reached the warren's entrance. They charged within and rounded a corner. A pair of desperate blades swung weakly out toward them. The first caught on the archangel's Angel's of shoulder plate. The second scraped dully against Urza's armored flank before clattering loose to the floor. The wielders, two young human-looking males, staggered back from the assault and flung up hands to ward off the archangel's torch cudgel. In the blue-white glare of the torch, the young men glowed a ghastly shade of green. A spell arced from the angel's gloved hand, pinioning the limbs of both men on spits of lightning. They paused only a moment before bursting outward in a rain of charred flesh. White flashes of life force flared from the falling bodies and were drawn violently into the torches. Without pause, the archangel strode over to the smoldering forms and into the narrow passage beyond. It was a spiraling descent that led into the heart of the aerial island. Urza followed. Behind them, the main body of angel and human warriors entered. Two warriors took post at the cave mouth.
1: They live in cold, squalid darkness down there, afraid of the light, of the truth.
0: Radiant had said as she nibbled on a corner of toast. She had followed the comment with a wistful sigh.
1: It is as though the air that had once nourished all of us is poison to them.
0: The archangel led Urza and the rest of the cleansing contingent down the spiraling passage. It led out into a large central chamber. It was deserted. Five small fires leaked smoke into holes in the ceiling. A few middens of bone and trash lay near disheveled sleeping mats. From this central chamber, many dark side passages opened. The Archangel drifted regally into the middle of the cavern. He signaled the troops after him to scour the passageways. Two by two, the warriors pressed into the darkness. Torches flared. Voices cried out in terror. Lightning's crackled. Teams emerged. Efficient, rapid, and ruthless. Except that something was very wrong. As they had descended into the cavern, the Phyrexian stench of the air had lessened until it was gone. Urza swept quickly ahead of the brute squads into a dark passage. His gemstone eyes dismantled the darkness and he saw. A very human family huddled in that tiny alcove. Mother and father and child. Phyrexians did not make sleepers to resemble children. These folks clung to each other, cowering against unyielding stone. They stared through the blackness at the hulking figure of Urza. They muttered prayers to their angels. Then the killers arrived. They swept past Urza. Their torches sent mirror shards of blue and white scattering across the wall. Urza saw his own shadow cast, huge and malevolent, over the family. Then torchlight broke out over them, and their skin glared yellow-green. An axe rent the father's head, and a spear impaled mother and child both. Red blood came from them all in the moment before the incinerating blast. White fire gave way to black smoke and red welts in the eyes. In the midst of it, spinning ghosts poured from the cloven forms and were sucked away into the beaming torches. An angel cast another sorcery. Glowing motes of sand followed the inner contours of the wall, seeking secret doors. When none were found, the killing team gave the all-clear whistle, shouldered their weapons, and marched out past the holy warriors posted at the entrance. Urza followed them out. He soared to the archangel, who hovered in the cavern midst. Arriving beside the commander, Urza spoke rapidly. Those torches don't work. They show human skin to be yellow green, also. The Archangel's response was unimpassioned. We have no better way to proceed. You are killing your own folk. You are killing humans and angels, not Phyrexians, Urza insisted. This is a private war, the Archangel replied flatly. I can smell their blood. We cannot send you like a scent hound into every burrow. You cannot keep killing innocent people. You have done so. I have done so to battle Phyrexia. Phyrexia is here. You said it yourself. The reek isn't here. It is in the palace. And then he knew he had said too much. Even as the lightning bolt jagged down from the archangel's fingers, Urza stepped into the space between worlds and walked the Hall of Chaos. Urza emerged in the height of the aviary. He was alone for the moment. Radiant Throne stood empty. The nearest angels or guards lingered on platforms hundreds of feet below. He was alone, save for hundreds of spell triggers silently tripping, one after another, he felt their sorceress hooks drawing over him and retracting into the walls. He waited for Radiant, for her personal guard, or whomever would answer the alarms. In the all-seeing panes of the glass around, Urza glimpsed images of slaughter and death. The cleansing squads had not ceased their labors. A globe of light leapt into being around him, its surface roiled with fire. A score of angels rose in a fierce circle from the floor and, in moments, hemmed him in with spears. She arrived. Whatever other enchantments lay upon the space, Radiant apparently maintained a summoning alarm. She appeared, seated in her punitive throne, wings and hair drooping over her sides. As her robes of state spread across the High Throne, a darker being took form just behind Urza. Minister of War Gorig drew his tall, lean figure together from empty air and strode to the edge of the platform. His lemon-wedge eyes glared balefully at the planeswalker.
1: To what do we owe this intrusion?
0: Lady Radiant asked from her lofted throne. Forgive my effrontery, Urza said, sketching an elaborate bow, but the situation is urgent.
1: You were to accompany a cleansing army at the jumbles, she said. You were fully provisioned and brief. The battle is even now in progress. Why are you here?
0: Your cleansing army is killing humans and angels as well as Phyrexians, Urza said urgently, flung a hand toward the images in the windows. Look! See for yourself! Radiant, involuntary, peered toward the scenes and then reeled, her eyes swimming with violent images. Gorig blinked in irritation. There will always be civilian casualties in such operations. There are weeds among the grain. To root out the weeds, a few heads of grain will be lost. But to leave the weeds, they'll all be lost. I sensed no Phyrexians in the main cavern we entered, and yet every living creature within was being slaughtered. They were humans, they were angels, they were not Phyrexians, and yet they died all the same. Gorg's response sounded like a growl in his throat. They were dissidents. They were traitors to the state. They were in league with Phyrexia, were in all respects, but... Physiology, Phyrexian. You don't know their crimes against the state and so can't judge their fates. This war is a private matter. If you wish to be rid of these refugees... These dissidents! Corrected Radiant serenely. These dissidents? I will prepare a place for them on Dominaria! Radiant's fair features were tainted with distaste.
1: You would bear them to your world even knowing Phyrexian sleepers hid among them?
0: Yes! Urza said without pause. The response seemed to surprise even him. I would do my best to root out whatever Phyrexians lurked in their midst, but better than the multitude of mortals survive to shield a handful of monsters than then they die to eliminate them. Radiant glanced a question at her war minister. Anger jagged across Gord's features. How can you possibly make this offer? Even one of the beasts survives, your whole world will be destroyed. I know that very well, Rosa replied sternly. And yet I make the offer. Lady Radiant, do you give me leave to rid you of your refugee problem? The woman's face had regained its placid composure.
1: I suppose it would save us casualties and weaponry merely to ship out the dissenters.
0: No, interrupted Gorig. No one leaves. The doors of the realm are closed and will stay closed. No one leaves. A protest formed itself on Urza's lip, but never emerged. In a sudden flash, Urza understood. No one leaves except me. Even as he stepped across the dimensional threshold into that shifting space between worlds, the roar of Gorig followed him out. Return and you'll be slain! You're an enemy of the state, planeswalker! You are Phyrexian! Phyrexian sleepers are indeed in Sarah's realm, Urza said as he paced in his private study. They are transforming it, using it to prepare their invasion of Dominaria, but not as we had thought. Magemaster Baron sat grimly at the Blackwood table. The shadows of the high study gathered about his shoulders. Beyond the window in a distant glade, the nearly completed hull of the airship creaked in its slow, final expansions. The Sleepers have fomented fermented rebellion in the realm. They have sparked a civil war. They've done it not by stirring up dissidents among the citizens, but by filling the palace with fear. Their leader is War Minister Gorig, who has shut down the discourse and debate that once filled the terraces and gardens of the realm, and replaced them with tribunal and terror. Every day he declares more citizens traitors to the state and he evicts them from the palace. They cannot leave the realm, though, and flee to refugee camps on broken islands at the edge of the plain. There they are hunted down as though for sport. All the while the realm shrinks. Baron was nettled. He ran a hand through his ragged hair. How does any of this advance the Phyrexian invasion? White mana, Urza said. Phyrexia has discovered a way to decant it, draw it off, and... Convert it into black mana. By slaying the refugees, they are harvesting white mana, drawing it into the sorceress torches that store the power until it can be taken to Phyrexia. Between raids, Gorig must empty the torches into a soul battery, all the while Sarah's realm is shrinking and Phyrexia's reach is growing. Gorig will allow no one to leave because he is harvesting their souls. A specter crossed Baron's eyes. Harvesting them? He shook his head, dumbfounded. How much has the realm shrunk? Urza rubbed his jaw in consideration. It has already fallen below its critical mass. Its collapse is inevitable. All that white matter is harvested by Gorig and reaches Phyrexia. We are doomed! Urza finished. Baron could sit no longer. He bolted to his feet, chair toppling behind him. He paced feverishly. If we could find Gorig's stores of white matter and divert them into the power stone for your flying ship, an astonished look crossed Urza's face.
2: I can't believe what you are suggesting. It is Argoth all over, using the souls of others to power my own private war. No, said Baron. No, this is different. This is no longer a private war, Uzzah. And, and you would not be harvesting souls. You would be resurrecting them. They are, they are gone already. You would be bringing them back, saving them from Phyrexia, and giving them new life in the heart of your own ship. You would be giving them a chance to avenge their own death. Perhaps, Uzzah allowed,
0: his eyes glowed with remembered atrocities. Perhaps.
2: This is not Argoth at all, Urza, Baron assured. We're too late to save Sarah's realm. The Phyrexians have already destroyed it, but you can still save her people.
0: Urza's voice was fervid as he picked up the thought. I'll find where Gorg is storing the souls. They must be in Sarah's realm, perhaps in the palace. But he'll know I've come back. He'll know what I'm looking for. He'll tighten his defenses. I'll only have a few chances. Perhaps I could bring back some refugees each time. I could... Take a hundred at once, if, if they would gather together, but, but, but they're thousands. He looked up, his eyes sparkled intensely. We need the ship, Baron. Once I find the Battery of Souls, we'll need the ship to get the rest of them. How soon can it be ready?
2: The hull is almost complete. The, the engine and metal pieces are already in place. The sail crew's finished months ago. By now, Joyra and Khan will have completed the Powerstone Corps. We, we've got to train a crew, of course, find the soul battery, and I'd say we could fly in a month, three weeks if we work day and night. I'll find the
0: battery. And save those I can and muster the rest. Baron smiled broadly, rubbing his hands together
2: in astonishment. I had thought our victory over the monsters in the gorge had been your crowning moment, my friend. But you have made wars before, and it takes no great man to kill. It takes a great man to save, Urza. Uh, it takes a great man. The cranes were in place
0: around the upended ship, block, and tackle threaded through the great straddling braces of metal. Turd kicked the base of one of the stanchions, scratched his head in vexation, and shouted instructions to his gray-skinned comrades. They scurried up about him and stared in puzzlement at the bottom of the metal beam. It sat almost but not quite atop the stone it was supposed to rest on. As his co-workers looked downward on the spot, Turd took the occasion to fling his arm out, winging them all in the back of the head. More shouts followed, and the workers turned to the set of ropes, stabilizing the great piece of machinery. Meanwhile, Diago Dierve and Baron consulted diagrams spread across the field table. They discussed torque and stress loads. Diago assured the Master Mage that the Metal Cross members could support two flying ships. If any aspect of the arrangement were insufficient, he insisted, it was the network of ropes. With a quirked lip, Baron likewise assured the Viaschino engineer that Talarian hemp was extraordinarily strong in all of its applications. Nearby stood another table. It was stout and stone. Four runners surrounded it. A watchful scorpion was stationed beneath it, and falcons circled high above it. Atop the table lay a black cloth, beneath which huddled a mass the general size and shape of a man. To one side of the table stood Karn. Though he was utterly still, the focus of his eyes shifted nervously across the crowd of students, lizardmen, and goblins clustered beyond the ropes. Joira sensed the tension in her friend. Relax, Karn. There's no Phyrexian among us today.
2: The stone is priceless, Karn said. It wouldn't take a Phyrexian to try to steal it.
0: It would take a mammoth, Joira pointed out.
2: I'll just feel better when the stone is in the engine.
0: Joira shook her head wonderingly and teased. You're constantly complaining about having a purpose in the grand scheme of things, and once you have a purpose, all you can do is worry. Perhaps my effective matrix is flawed, Karn said in impressive deadpan. A shout came down the line of goblin laborers. Ropes that had been slack went suddenly taut. The great hull of the ship creaked as lines tugged it in cross directions. Long and slender, the ship quivered within its dry dock framework, its bowsprit wavered, 300 feet up in the blue sky. With a tremendous groan, the prow tilted down toward the horizon. More shouts came from the goblins, and lines shuddered with the strain. The curved metal stanchions overhead bowed just slightly beneath the tipping burden. Magemaster Baron sent streamers of blue magic out to wrap themselves around points of stress. Scintillating power sank into the metal, or hemp adding magical strength. The tapered stern of the airship, once lying against the ground, tilted upward, showing a row of windows and an insignia shaped like a giant seed. The weather seed, Joyra said, pointing to the spot. Yes, Karn agreed. Altani says the ship is complete but unfinished. Joyra said, it's still alive, still growing. It's as much a creature as it is a machine. Karn was silent. Joy repressed. You're no longer alone, Karn. Urza's designed and built his second living machine. No, Joira, you are wrong, Karn said. I'm
2: a thinking, feeling machine, but I am not alive. This ship is Urza's only living machine. It is always growing, integrating new parts into its structure. I am not growing. I am disintegrating. Jora
0: sighed heavily. Oh, disintegrating, aren't we all? Masts and spars that had for long months jutted sideways from the upended ship stepped into the sky. With a final shudder and thud, the vessel settled atop the landing spines. Ropes that had eased it downward grew slack. The teams hauling on those lines leaned forward and let them drop to the ground. It was a sigh from workers and artificers and even the ship herself, upright for the first time. The sleek-raked craft looked large and muscular against the whispering forests of Tilaria. Crews reverently approached it, staring in awe at its glimmering portholes and its elegant webwork of lines. Then the command started again. Workers set ladders to the side of the vessel and climbed aboard. Ramps were hauled into position to ease loading. Weapon crews swarmed with various beam weapons embedded in the prow and along the length of the gun walls. Master Mage Baron levitated himself into the air and floated along the curving rail of the craft, surveying it on all levels. Well, Karn, let's get this stone inside. Joyra said. She pulled back the black cloth, revealing a massive and beautifully shaped stone configured in a long lozenge like the weather seat itself. It caught the sunlight, amplified it, and sent it stabbing outward into a blinding corona. Carn leaned down, gathered the heavy gem against his gleaming chest plates, and hoisted it into the air. The combination of silver and crystal was dazzling. Carn was transfigured, a man made of lightning. He walked reverently toward the ramp that led him into the ship, a cadre of four runners surrounded him. Joira fell back, astonished by the bright spectacle. It suddenly occurred to her that Karn and the airship were of one piece. They were not two different generations of invention, but one continuum. Perhaps Karn didn't realize it. Perhaps Urza did not even realize it. But the Silver Man and the skyship would go down together through time, parts of a single legacy. Urza crouched in a dark chamber in Sarah's palace. Gorik's forces had located him and were closing in. Their bootsteps rang in the hallway. He still had not found the soul battery. He had not even discovered where Gorog kept charged soul torches. Time grew short. With sudden violence, soldiers' boots pounded against the barred door. Urza stepped away. He crossed the echoing crawlspace between worlds and emerged to the emperor in reaches of Sarah's realm. Here, the palace was only a distant black speck drifting on the horizon. Ahead of him, the jumbles formed a chaotic sea of tumbling stones. A golden regatta of trooplanders and angel wings glinted above one of the larger masses. They descended toward a refugee hive. Their white-blue soul torches trailed smoking crazings in the air. There, just beneath a green ridge where grasses clung to a ruined temple, was the entrance. With a mere thought, Urza disappeared from the spot where he hovered. He stepped in a flashing moment into the mouth of the hive. A handful of young guards started at his appearance and pivoted to hurl their crude spears. One man fell in a tangle of grimy clothes. Four others managed to send their spears Urza's way. The planeswalker swept his hand in an arc before him and the spears cracked from a sudden invisible barrier. They rattled to the cave floor. Save them for the cleansing army, Urza advised. Like it or not, I am your ally against them. I'm going within to take with me any who wish to escape to a new place. He retreated quickly down the passage while the sentinels stared, stunned, after him. One of them, a young angel warrior, rose on her wings and followed. Urza sped away from her. She shouted in his wake, Who are you? I am Urza, the Plainswalker." The broadening cave walls picked up the announcement, bearing it inward to the people clustered about the fires there. Without pause, Urza continued his oration. The armies of Radiant are coming. They will kill anyone they can find in this place, and any who wish to escape, gather here beside me. His summons was met with only dull stares. There is no time. If you would live, gather here. Though most of the folk beside the fires, grimy men and women and dispirited angels, stayed where they were, a few young folk rose tentatively and made their way towards Urza. Behind him, several metallic thuds sounded. Then came the distant roar of warriors charging. More of the cavern's inhabitants gathered to the stranger's side. A group of nearly twenty. Flashes and shrieks surrounded from the mouth of the cave. Now, no one remained by the fires either fleeing to Urza or fleeing away to the dens carved in the rock off by the main hall. Those who will not come, Urza shouted as he focused his mind on the coming planeswalk. If you survive, get yourself to the colony farthest from the palace, the Arizon colony on the aerial island called Jabak. I will return there in two weeks' time to save you and anyone else you can bring with you. Gesturing the fearful, starving mob into a tight cluster, Urza extended his consciousness to surround them. Just as the air began to flare and spark with lightning, Urza folded them into two dimensions and walked with them from the world. Radiant sat on her throne at the height of the aviary. In the last few weeks, it had become a much more soothing place. When Urza had joined the rebel cause, Gorog at last convinced Radiant to fortify the aviary. She let him surround the glass tower in a web of steel grills. That measure did not satisfy Gorog, though. He pointed out that any flying creature with a crossbow could slay her and her throne by sending a bolt through the glass. Radiant relented. She allowed Gorog to fasten thick plates of steel atop the grillwork. Of course, the aviary grew dark. The plants died, the birds fell into unnatural slumber from which they never awakened. The place became cold and dank, but at least it was safe, except for those cursed windows and their violent images. Last of all, Gorg had convinced Radiant to let him dispel the far-seeing enchantments and convert all the panes in the aviary to mirrors. Now Radiant sat in a dark and safe aviary. The only light came from her glowing presence. The mirrors all around her shimmered with her image. The first time in centuries she felt at home on the throne of Sarah. Here she sat, searching the eyes of a multitude, the eyes of Radiant. Lady Radiant, came a voice from below. It was Gorig. He had emerged on his audience platform. The wine of servos told that he yet wore his battle armor. There was another sound, too the untidy whisper of a large and heavy bag being drawn along marble. I have something to show you, something that will please you very much. Not now, Gorig. The angel said distractedly.
1: I am seeing the future. I am gazing into my own eyes.
0: His voice was impatient but as sly as a serpent. Look down for a moment and you will see the future.
1: No, the future is here. It is in my eyes. That's where Urza Plainswalker, will find his fate. He will look into my eyes. This war will come down to us. I will fight him myself. He will look into my eyes and see the beauty there. I remember what this place was when Sarah sat this throne what this place was before he brought death here.
0: We had a successful harvest today.
1: I will look into his eyes and understand at last what madness makes a man bring devils to heaven and return to aid them.
0: Gorig's voice was suddenly hesitant. I would advise you not to look directly into the eyes of Urza Planeswalker, my lady. They are unnatural things, like the eyes of a bug. They will only hypnotize you.
1: No, Gorig,
0: Radiant said with a bitter smile.
1: I will look into his eyes, and he into mine, and we'll know which of us is right, and which of us is mad."
0: "'Please, dear lady,' begged Gorik. "'forget about Urza for a moment. Look down and see what I have brought you.' His entity was followed by a clattering sound, as though the bag he dragged disgorged hundreds of large wooden balls. Her curiosity peaked, Radiant at last glanced down, her eyes lit with delight.
1: "'Oh, heads! There must be 200 heads! Oh, how beautiful, Gorig! How beautiful!
2: In the last three weeks, Urza has gotten 423 refugees out of Sarah's realm. He estimates that at least that number have been slaughtered by Radiant's cleansing army. He also believes each of his intrusions into the embattled plain only accelerates Radiant's genocidal war. All of the large concentrations of refugees have been harvested, aside from the Arizon colony on Jabak. It holds thousands. For them, there is only one hope. The airship. Once it is fully operational, it should be able to hold most of the remaining seven rebels. The trouble is the vessel will be fully operational only when we find the soul battery. Urza still hasn't located it. He has searched Gorg's private chamber. He has penetrated the deepest vaults in the palace. He's fought his way in and out of the best defended sections of the realm. Still nothing. On one of his journeys, Urza was forced into a showdown with an angel contingent. After the smoke had cleared and the bodies had fallen to dust, he recovered twelve mana-charged soul torches. A week's study, night and day, revealed the trick to them. They held enough white mana to provisionally charge the ship's power stone. We estimate the vessel will be able to fly, plane shift once, fire a few bolts from the deck, mounted energy points, and maneuver to the refugee encampment. The twelve emptied torches are now mounted along the lines of the hull power conduits running from them to the core of the ship who's hopes they will draw enough white matter from the air of Service realm to recharge the stone for another plane shift when the refugees are aboard. The power will not last, of course. We need the soul battery to permanently charge the stone, but this is less concerned about completing his airship than he is about rescuing refugees. He acts as though these folks are modern-day ambassadors representing the bygone thousands killed in his wars. Perhaps they are. Perhaps in saving them... He's saving himself. Baron, Mage Master of Telaria.